Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 158 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. This week's story covers a span of 20 years across London and the South East and is a story of violence, deception and greed. And a new first for the show, relevant only for those not in long-term relationships, the dangers of oral sex, entertainment and public health education. UK True Crime, the show that keeps on giving, huh? We passed 4,000 members in the UK True Crime Facebook group this week. If you aren't already a member, Firstly, why not? Why not get over there, give it a whirl? And also check out my website, truecrime.com. The latest piece is an article from the creator of a new podcast called Apple for the Teacher. Take a look. As usual, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new members of this special exclusive club. That is Ellie J, Mary Carrick Field, Leanne Morris, Alexander Blair Loveday, Charlotte Jones, and also Tim Blank for increasing his support level. Thank you all so much for your support, which I hope you know is so much appreciated. Let's briefly set some context for today's story by taking a quick look at the music we were listening to on the 5th of September 1992. Number one in the UK was The Shaman with Ebenezer Good. Remember that? Anybody got any viewers? Dr. Alban with It's My Life was at number two. Like me, does it always remind you a bit too much of that advert? Top of the US charts were Boys to Men with End of the Road. Not really my sort of thing, you? And in Australia, we saw a return to thrash metal as topping of the album charts for the year was the soundtrack to the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. In the news this month, Hurricane Iniki hit Hawaii where three people died and over 8,000 were injured. In the US tennis, Monica Sellers won again. And Stefan Edberg, legend and supporter of the world's greatest football team, the Mighty Leeds United, retained the men's title, beating Pete Sampras in the final. In the UK, it was Black Wednesday, when the UK government was forced to withdraw the pound sterling from the European exchange rate mechanism, after being unable to keep it above the agreed lowest limit. And David Meller, remember him? Resigned as an adulterous affair with the actress Antonia de Sancha, hit the tabloids. Remember that? All the details you really didn't want to know about how he wore a Chelsea kit in the sack with her, behind his wife's back, of course. Apologies to anyone who was eating. <laughs> God, the image! Today's story begins in Tottenham, North London, which is part of the London borough of Haringey, around five and a half miles north of Charing Cross, and best known for its football team, and for true crime fans, for the riots of 1985 following the death of Cynthia Jarrett, and the further riots in 2011 following the shooting of Mark Duggan. And now it's a part of London that's really on the up. 
It was November 1971 and 17-year-old Shirley Griffiths was a trainee hairdresser in Tottenham. When she popped home for lunch one normal, standard day, she made a terrible discovery, finding her mum, Lillian Shapiro, lying lifeless in the dining room. Lillian hadn't been in the best of health since she suffered a stroke six years earlier. It was a serious one and she was completely paralysed down the left side of her body, but she was a strong woman with a great attitude to life and she'd refused to let her illness stop her leading her very best life. Shirley had always known there was a danger her mum would have another stroke and it could be fatal. But even so, as anyone who has lost a parent will know, the shock is still terrible, even if it's expected. Shirley had to go through the formalities of giving a statement at the police station, but soon afterwards she couldn't believe what she was hearing, after being told by detectives that her mum's death hadn't been caused by a stroke after all. She had in fact been murdered, strangled, in her own home. Shirley just couldn't believe it, but even in her stunned state, she had an immediate suspicion about who could be responsible. A 21-year-old local trainee ambulance driver called Terry Bewley. Her mum had worked as a credit controller and she had told Shirley how Terry Bewley was useless at managing his finances and was always in debt. Just a few days earlier, Bewley had been very strange with Lillian, asking some very odd questions about her work and what happened to the money she collected. The conversation was concerning enough for her husband Alfred to tell his wife to be careful of Bewley and not under any circumstances to let him into their house. Stephen Hawking he wasn't and Bewley was quickly rounded up by detectives and in the boot of his car lay Lillian's bag emptied of the 30 or so pounds that had been in there. Detectives suspected he had killed her for his money thinking she kept a large amount at her house but she'd banked the bulk of it, so his haul was a very small one. Under questioning, Bewley admitted hitting Lillian during the course of a robbery, but insisted he hadn't killed her. Bewley was charged with murder, and at his trial at the Old Bailey in the spring of 1972, he was unanimously found guilty and sentenced to 15 years in the slammer for murder, along with a consecutive sentence of five years for burglary. Speaking to the excellent website TotalCrime.com, Shirley told how after the murder her life changed significantly. When the recession hit, she left England to move to South Africa in the 1980s. She retrained as a nurse, married a Yorkshireman she met out there and they had a daughter. Shirley told how both the family and the police felt that the sentence for the arrogant Bewley was too lenient. Shirley recalled... Bewley was smirking and laughing during the sentencing. And whereas following the murder, Bewley suffered some short-term pain as he was divorced by his wife and had to spend time in prison, the repercussions for Shirley's family were much more final, with Shirley saying, It broke my dad. He died in 1987, aged 75, but he was never the same. He was a broken man. Unbeknown to Shirley, Bewley was released from prison as early as 1981, when he moved a few miles further north and west to Ricelip in Middlesex. Bewley never seemed to struggle meeting women, and he soon met someone else and settled down with her in a serious relationship 
and he secured a job as a chauffeur. Back in those days, it was much more difficult for employers to check the criminal histories of their employees, and his employees were unaware that Beauty was a convicted murderer. All seemed to go well for a few years, and Beauty seemed to stay out of trouble. But then tragedy struck Beauty when his partner suddenly found she had an aggressive form of cancer, and she died after a short illness. Not long after this, Beauty met a fellow widower, a pretty blonde lady called Sandra. Sandra's second husband had died in 1985, and according to reports it appears she was very fond of dating numerous men and struggled when there was no man in her life as she had an incredibly high sex drive. It was 1989 when Sandra met Beaulieu, who was attractive, charismatic, fun to be with, and like Sandra, a high sex drive and very open-minded sexually. One of Sandra's friends, Christine Willis, later said, Sandra needed a loss of sex in her life. It was very important to her. I don't think her initial relationship with Terry involved anything else. And sex was a huge part of their relationship, and they enjoyed sex in the back of the Rolls Royces that Beaulieu used to drive as a chauffeur, with Sandra often going to the garages where the luxury cars were kept to meet him, dressed in just underwear and a coat. Bit different from the more sordid sex in the back of the taxi we discussed last week. Beauty became a keen amateur photographer and he took numerous pictures of Sandra in and around the Rolls Royces which she shared with some of her friends. One time after the two had argued, they made up when Beauty made one of Sandra's sexual fantasies come true. A friend of Sandra's later described how Sandra described this gift to her from Beauty. She told me he blindfolded her and tied her to the bed and brought a man in to have sex with her while Beauty was present and watched. It was someone she didn't know, and it happened again at least once. This time she thought it was a different man. One had a moustache and the other did not. I wonder if they ever headed up the M6 to Rochdale. Reminds me, I must arrange the Facebook group's Christmas party. But for all his charms, Beauty didn't offer Sandra the proper relationship that she wanted beyond sex. And he also wasn't in a very good position financially and kept hassling Sandra for money. Both of these points are summed up, I think, in just one incident where Sandra lent him £4,000, a considerable sum today, let alone 25 or so years ago. But despite her generosity, Beaulieu refused to give her his address or phone number. Friends of Sandra say it was this sort of behaviour from Beaulieu that made her obsessed with him, and there was almost nothing he could ask her to do that she would refuse. And then in 1990, Sandra met a man named Bob Wignall, when they were both walking their dogs in woods in Surrey. At 55, Bob was seven years older than Sandra, but he was a lovely, genuine man. Three children, kind, interested, caring, and they began to talk, quickly finding out they'd stuff in common. Both were widowed and both had nursed their partners through cancer and they both loved dogs and wildlife. Bob, who suffered severely from asthma, represented the constant companion that Beaulieu refused to be and they soon became a couple, marrying on Christmas Eve 1991. But Bob was very different to Beaulieu. He wasn't reckless living life on the edge. 
But he was kind, always doing things for Sandra, making her tea, checking she was okay. But after just nine days of marriage, she told friends that she'd made a huge mistake, as Bob was, to her, well, he was just a bit dull. He wasn't exciting enough for Sandra, and so she quickly resumed her relationship with Bewley, who was now promising Sandra the real, full-on relationship that she'd always wanted from him. Bob was a painter and decorator, so Sandra would drive him to work, before then heading off to live her exciting double life with Terry Bewley. Friends of Sandra say that her obsession with Bewley grew and grew, so much so that when he hatched a plan for her husband to take out 21000 in life insurance, so he could then be killed and he and Sandra could start a new life with the money, Sandra didn't take much persuading to go along with it. This was their opportunity to be together as a couple and live happily ever after. They planned the murder for the 5th of September 1992, but it almost didn't happen when the week before Bob confronted his wife about her suspected infidelity. He had checked the car mileage and couldn't understand why there were so many more miles on the clock if she was just dropping him to work and coming home. But Sandra could be very persuasive, and she managed to convince him that she was fully committed to him and was not having an affair, but it was a close-run thing. The evening of the 5th of September was one of those which reminds us why the UK can be such a lovely place to live. A warm autumn evening, the light fading, and lots of nature to see around the fields and the woods. That evening, Sandra persuaded her husband Bob to join her for a walk in the woods behind their house in Adelstone, the woods where they had first met, to go and feed some foxes. Bob loved Say's wood and all wildlife, and he was happy to join his wife for an early evening walk. After a while, Sandra became somewhat amorous and began to give her husband oral sex. But this was to be no pleasurable experience for Bob as it was a pre-planned act to distract him and it allowed her lover, 43-year-old Terry Bewley and his 42-year-old pal Howard Malt to creep out of their hiding places and launch a sustained violent assault on Bob, beating and stabbing him repeatedly. Bob didn't stand a chance to defend himself and he lost his life that beautiful early autumn evening in the woods by his home with his wife alongside him. Sandra took a deep breath and told police that she and Bob had been jumped by unknown youths during their walk and she consistently broke down in tears when talking about the murder of her dear husband. And for a while, Sandra Wignall played the expected part of the grief-stricken widow expertly, weeping when she was interviewed on the TV programme Crime Monthly, which covered Bob's murder. But after this programme was aired, along with a televised reconstruction of the crime, a male caller phoned in to tell police, Sandra Wignall is the key to this. She is an evil woman, and she can take you to the address where these men can be found. And detectives, already suspicious of her account of what had happened in the woods, became even more so after she submitted an insurance claim just 11 days after Bob's death, even before his funeral. 
Detectives were hearing whispers that Sandra was telling friends of her plans to spend the money on a holiday in Tenerife and a horse. And as the narrative was propagated in the media of a blissful marriage, more friends and neighbours approached detectives with their concerns about Sandra. And when it became clear from the information they were receiving that Sandra was having an affair with Terry Bewley, the attention of detectives markedly shift from viewing her as a victim to a suspect. Investigators had never been completely happy of her story about the events of the night, when she claimed that three youths attacked the couple without reason and she had run away when one had made a move to assault her. They were also suspicious of the astonishing levels of detail that she had provided to an artist about the attackers, especially as it was getting dark and the situation was exceptionally stressful. Not a time when you'd expect this level of information to be noted. But Sandra had managed to identify, for example, small details such as a tiny insignia on the side of a pair of tracksuit bottoms. But the key that unlocked the investigation, see what I did there? Was a bracelet found at the scene which contained the letter H, which was later identified as belonging to a friend of Terry Bewley, a man called Harold Malt. Bewley and Malt were brought in for questioning. Bewley, cocky, arrogant, he was adamant he wasn't involved in any way. He insisted he was never in the woods and had nothing whatsoever to do with the attack. Malt, too, initially denied involvement, but the evidence was stacking up, and along with Bewley and Sandra Wignall, he was charged with murder. This charge can often affect those less hardened criminals when reality begins to dawn, and it was with Malt who began to talk more openly and confessed that he and Bewley had carried out the attack. He told detectives that Bob Wignall and Bewley had been fighting on the ground and he noticed a knife next to them which he picked up, saying, I might have stabbed him, I'm not sure. It seemed like a lifetime, but it was only seconds. Malt also described burning his and Bewley's bloodstained clothes in the garden of his home at Ladywood, Birmingham. I don't know why I'd done it. It was a stupid argument that went wrong. It got out of hand, he told police. He reiterated again and again that it was only meant to frighten, not kill him. And ahead of their murder trial, the third of this somewhat unpleasant triumvirate, the sobbing widow herself, also confessed. Her brother visited her in Holloway Prison and asked her what she knew about her husband's death. Well, I helped to arrange it, she replied. Despite the evidence against them, Bewley, Malt and Wignall all pleaded not guilty at their trial. Timothy Langdale QC for the prosecution said that Bob Wignall's murder was a crime of lust and greed. Sandra Wignall was obsessed with Bewley and stood to gain £21,000 from her husband's life insurance policy taken out the previous April. During the trial, the jury heard from Sandra Wignall's friends that she was bored of her marriage telling one she'd rushed into it and it was the biggest mistake of her life. And when the jury came back from their deliberations, they had reached their verdict on all three defendants, guilty. To cries of relief and joy from Bob Wignall's relatives, 
who had sat in the public gallery at the Old Bailey throughout the four-week trial. All three were jailed for life. Bewley, who was already out on licence from his first murder, was jailed for life again, this time with a minimum tariff of 30 years. Sandra Wignall, she received 15 years in prison. She was released in 2006. And Malt received 10 years, but he died in prison. Whatever he'd been promised for his part in the crime from his mate Bewley, it palpably wasn't worth it. Outside court, the lead investigator described Wignall as cold and cunning and expressed concern that Bewley had been freed only to kill again, he said. The first conviction was for robbery and murder for a small sum of money. Twenty years later, he ends up killing again for what can only be described as another small sum of money. Debbie Philpott, Bob Wignall's daughter, told reporters, we're just glad it's all over. Let's forward wind to today and return to Shirley, the daughter of Beauty's first victim, Lillian Shaparo. Talking to Total Crime recently, she said the following about Terry Beauty. About 18 months ago, something in my head told me to go look on the internet. I googled his mum's name and saw a notice on the National Archives website about closing his file. I think I opened a can of worms. I had to fill in a form. My brother, my cousin and my daughter also filled one in. It took eight weeks to come back. They decided to close his file because it was too sensitive. The file would not be opened until 2056. She also learnt he'd been released in 2012 after serving only 19 years for his sentence. And this, remember, was for his second murder. Which means that unless he has hit the dirt, Terry Bewley is around us somewhere. Maybe he's your neighbour or mine. Shirley rightly questions why the file is too sensitive to be opened before 2056, 83 years after his trial, when many of those interested in the case may well be dead. Total Crime asked the question and was told by a spokesman for the National Archives, The file 8746-71 on Terence Bewley has been closed because it contains sensitive personal information which would distress or endanger a living person or his defendants. Confused? Me too. Total Crime poses the following questions. Does this mean that Bewley was a police informant? Was he released early so he could do a dirty job for the police? Speaking from her home near Cape Town, Shirley Griffiths wants to know the answer. I don't know why they're covering it up, but I do know he is walking free, she says. I'm not doing this for myself. I'm doing it for my mum's honour. She also said she'd considered contacting Bob's three children, Debbie, Denise and Dean, who she was sure would be equally outraged at the treatment of Bewley. She discovered that eight other files relating to people convicted of murder or manslaughter were also sealed at the same time, in November 2012. Every time I try to get help from the legal system, I go round and round in circles, she said. I want that file opened. That's my life sentence. So what do you make of what we've heard today? I wonder where Terry Bewley is now and why we can't read his file. 
When Terry Bewley was jailed for the murder of Shirley Griffiths' mum, a detective, angered by the lenience shown by the judge, told her, he'll only serve 12 years and then he'll commit another murder. And right he was. He is now a much older man, but does he still pose no threat? As a man who has already killed twice for so little, I find that hard to believe, don't you? In the story we've heard today, I can't help feeling some sympathy for the hapless Malt, and also Sandra Wignall, both of whom appeared to be very easily manipulated by Terry Bewley. Reading accounts of the trial, I also feel very uncomfortable about how much detail of Sandra's sex life was used against her in court. It was, I think, unnecessary, and you would hope this wouldn't happen again today, although maybe I'm being a little bit naive here. But of course, our overall sympathies lie with the families and friends of Lillian Shapiro and Bob Wignall, both brutally murdered by Terry Bewley. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK true crime, please head over to the Facebook group where you'll be made very welcome over 4,000 of us fellow true crime fans. And to support the show, please head to Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash UK true crime to find 36 full-length bonus episodes, videos and other exclusive content. And you will get that lovely, warm feeling from supporting your 372nd favourite true crime podcaster. You know it makes sense. That is patreon.com slash UK true crime. Do it now or you know you will get preoccupied googling saunas in Rochdale and not get around to it. So that is all from me for today. I know, I know, no tears please. I'll be back next week when we will celebrate, if that is the word, three years since the first UK true crime podcast. I appreciate that for all of us, life doesn't get much more exciting than this, does it? I am almost overwhelmed. Almost. And as for you, please try your best to concentrate on other stuff. I know it won't be easy, but please try in the meantime. And of course, stay classy. Speak to you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh, oh. O'Reilly Auto Parts With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. 
LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. 